0: Welcome, Maker Nation. My name is Nain Raza, and I have one question for you. What is the last time you made a change? Change can seem like a powerful concept. In the times we live, it's just about everywhere you look. Politicians talk about change. Doctors talk about changes in public health. The coronavirus, that's a change. Kobe Bryant passed away, that's a change. Life is unpredictable. I invite you in this episode to consider that not all change is progress, and that's the reason why I brought in my guest today. That's right, folks. We have the one, the only Make School's very own Adam Browse in the house. Listen, so we are not gonna be smoking weed in this session. I want this to be of immeasurable valuable value to you, your family, your company, any May School alumni listening to this, any May School student listening, working on teams for SPD 1.3, no doubt. Even if you're a prospective student coming over this weekend. I know we all want those fancy jobs at Google, Facebook, Twitch, Tesla, August Homes, any company here in the Silicon Valley. The question here is, how do I get more than a job out of School? How do I lift up others? How do I be a great teammate? How do I lead change at work? That's what we're going to talk about in this one. If you have any thoughts, questions, feedback about the show, before the show, you can send those to me at ZaneRoss14 on Twitter or at AJ Brouse on twitter and we'll also link everything in the about section of this episode by the way stick around until the end so you can learn how to win a free copy of browse's newest book leading change at work the secret structure of change and how everyone can make it happen with that said let's get into the episode browse for everyone in this in the show that may not know who you are if you get like a two, like three-man sure. introduction, who, sure. is Brous? who is Adam
1: Browse? Who is Adam Um My name is Adam Brous. Uh I'm uh, one of the instructional designers here at Make School and I've worked here for a few years. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm a bunch of things. Software engineer, now now, now an author, which is kind of a cool new new role. Uh, obviously instructor, get to teach class occasionally. I go work up at Dominican half-time and, and run the minor up there
0: yeah
1: you, that's you, about it
0: yeah <laughs> i guess it's like you you're kind of part of the prisoner exchange like you go to dominican they come they send <laughs> the teachers that's here right. and that's how we, we that's end right. up. Having... i like
1: that prisoner exchange a real? <laughs> pow yep a real? that's right it's nice up there it's nice up there i think i think you know both sides gets a lot out of it so it's pretty cool yeah so on the subject of college, right? Maybe we should start about college.
0: Sure. Um, almost everyone listened to the show, like they know who, like Adam Browse is at Make School, but maybe go into how did how did you end up at Make School? Like maybe what were you doing right
1: before? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, right before I worked at Make School, I worked as one of the lead instructors at General Assembly, which is one of the major boot camps, and I was part of the web development immersive boot camp there, and I changed a lot of the curriculum, and I flipped their classrooms. And I, I I made a lot of positive changes there and, and kind of kind of was just looking for a bigger challenge and make school really looked like a much bigger challenge um, and more of a also younger people. So, so General Assembly was taking 27 year olds and training them for 12 weeks to be software engineers. And that doesn't really make sense. You know, like it's better to train people when they're young so that they have a whole decade in their 20s to, to be that career and then in their 30s they're experts rather than taking people right maybe when they're turning 30 and training them for 12 weeks didn't make sense to me so i wanted to go earlier i wanted to like get in you know earlier in, in the educational process so i was like make school is the only one really doing that everybody else everybody's really just doing boot camps make school is the only place that was either crazy or courageous enough to to risk everything and and, and try to work with 18 20, 18 to 22 year olds which is kind of our our sweet spot, you know? Yeah. So yeah, so I was interested in that. That was kind of what I did right before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And a lot, a lot of times, I guess leading chains, you have to be like kind of courageous, kind of crazy to do stuff like that. Sure. Sure. It takes really? a
1: little bit of courage.
0: One thing I've been, I to be honest, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile uh, a couple of days ago, and I think I saw a couple of your volunteering experiences. I wanted to talk about you sure. uh, volunteered at the last mile.
1: Yeah, a little bit. And,
0: mm-hmm. And I hear that's actually you were helping educate prisoners.
1: Yeah, that's what that is the last mile. Now I think they're in like eight prisons all over California, but I, I was working with them like two two to four years ago, which was when they were really just in San Quentin and they were really kind of more like the pilot or like the first version. But yeah so we went we, I would go in on Wednesdays uh, for the afternoon and uh, you know you had to wear the right clothes. you couldn't wear any blue. You couldn't wear like the wrong colors you couldn't wear orange or blue and then you had to wear like all black was safe really? and then uh yeah and we I never experienced any like problems like lockdowns or or like where we couldn't you know where we had to do anything special but I guess that happened sometimes like there you know it was a real it was a real prison you know but uh yeah there was a lot of guys in there learning a lot of code and uh, some they were actually really good. Uh, at coding, uh, oh, wow. it was pretty cool because they worked really hard. I mean, for them, it was like everything, you know, because it was the most engaging thing they could do, oh, yeah. you know. But it was it was quite cool, yeah. And people should look into that more. They they always need mentors, and it's and it's really interesting to like work with that pop, you know, population like prisoners, convicts, are you know have had life experiences that are interesting to say the least. Sure. And you you might not share necessarily a lot about that because you know you don't necessarily want to get involved. A lot personally but it's still a really interesting um population to work with so oh yeah
0: yeah yeah my like, my mom's a psychiatrist and like she, oh yeah cool. she always had stories like that like coming mm-hmm. home from work like
1: yeah does like, she ever work at a prison
0: i uh, not not uh she's worked with she didn't like have she didn't work in like the violent Sure. Patients. Sure. But like, you know, sometimes yeah. he comes home work work. Like, oh, you'll never believe what this guy said. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Couple we, have, of times. we
1: have that in common. My parents are psychiatrists as well. Cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm just, I just wanted to talk about, I, I read your blog. Adam Browse has a blog called the Browse blog on medium.com. He, <laughs> he, this guy, he writes about everything under the That's sun. That's where I put
1: the craziest stuff. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs>
0: But I wanted to ask about, uh, I know education is obviously one of your biggest interests. You wrote about the un-college? Yeah. Or like the un- PhD
1: was one I wrote. Yeah. So there was was a program that used to be called un-college. Now it's called year-on. It's kind of become just a gap year program. But before it was called year-on, it was called un-college. And it was really more of a radical kind of experiment in higher education. Like what if people went to college but they didn't really have any classes and they kind of just could do whatever they wanted and learn kind of whatever they wanted Um, and that that's an idea that fascinates me uh, a lot is kind of what people do when they are given what they need you know food shelter a social life um, but then also kind of left to their own devices and and what what comes out of that I think is cool and I and I'm really interested and curious about that so I thought about I thought about you know there's unschools which is like grade school people go to you know they do this unschooling mm-hmm. and then the guy who made uncollege Dale um, I forget his last name but Dale who is a friend of mine he 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 said well let's apply this to college let's do an uns- let's do unschooling but at the college level and I thought well then there's no end like let's have uns- unschooling all the way through to a PhD and so I wrote this article about how you can get just you can essentially get a PhD without going to grad school um that's actually kind of what my book, Leading Change at Work, is sort of a, for me, mm-hmm. it's kind of like an MBA without me going and get an MBA, right? Because now I have this book, I can say to people, hey, I'm an expert in organizational psychology, and they can be like, prove it. And I can be like, here's the book. Like, this is essentially like a thesis or a evidence of yeah. a lot of work. So I so I think writing books is kind of like, or, or doing what you're doing, like with a podcast or, or um, doing any kind of project is a kind of way to prove the way that a degree proves that you know something and that you are an expert, or you're trustworthy to be an expert in something.
0: Mm. Yeah, It's about
1: experience.
0: Like- yeah, and
1: signaling, you know, signaling. Because people in the job market are trying to, or even socially, in a lot of ways, we don't have enough time to actually know everything about other people. So we rely on them signaling things about themselves. It's called Stiglitzian signaling. Mm. Uh, there's a Nobel Prize economist wrote about this but so we use signaling so i went to college i have a degree that's a signal of a sort you know um here's my book i wrote this book that's a signal you know um i i'm an md i'm a medical doctor that's a signal right that you probably can trust them to you yeah. know take care of you medically um do you really know what they learned in medical school not really right yeah. but you just trust that signal so it's a similar a similar thing how can we how can we create more sophisticated signals than just mm-hmm. Oh, I have a bachelor's degree. Like, oh, well, what's that, right? So we do that at make school. We do portfolios. The portfolio becomes a signal that I can code, that I can build things, that I can, you
0: know. Yeah, and that yeah. overcomes, like, maybe, like, when a school, like, make school maybe lacks other types of signals, they have other sure. They have things in place of that. To, sure,
1: like yeah. the prestige of the name of the college, right? Like, if you say, oh, I have a degree from Stanford, people know, oh, Stanford, you know, so there's a big signal right there just from that. But maybe with Make School, some people know Make School because we're actually getting pretty well known now. Mm-hmm. Because especially because we have so many students. But um, but even if even if it isn't known, you just say, well, who cares if you know Make School? Look at my portfolio, you know, and look at these blog, you know, look at these blog posts I wrote about, you know, Hadoop clusters. You know, hire me as your data engineer or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Cool. So, I guess what, what is the value of this? Ooh. Maybe who did you write this
0: book for? Is it for people who are trying to be leaders? People. That's
1: a good question. The book is really, I think it's, the people who get the most value out of the book are people who have worked at a company for like six months to two years. Like it's your first job, you got the job and then like a year in, you kind of learn the ropes and now you're like, huh, I want to like fix things more effectively or like I see the big problems and I see the solutions and I want to change things you know, 10 years in, you know, you've been working somewhere 10 years, you've been working in your career for 10 years, you might be kind of jaded. Like, ah, I can't really change things. And you might kind of think, oh, who cares if I change things in I've figured out how to make everything work without changing it. Mm. But I think if you've been working somewhere for like six months to two years, you kind of still believe that you can change things and you're still kind of excited to change things. And you you have the know-how to do it. So if you've never worked anywhere really or like had your career The book probably won't be the most interesting thing it'll it'll kind of be like a crystal ball of like a vision of things to come but if you've just worked somewhere for like a year and you're kind of like want to go further this book is like perfect it'll unlock an enormous amount of um, potential for you to grow and become more of a manager or more of an an independent contributor like a more powerful independent contributor it'll just in generally enhance your power at a company Um, yeah yeah. I think that's the main group that it's made for. Yeah.
0: It sounds like it's the type of leaders that people don't know. then this don't always necessarily like expect are gonna lead change or lead progress, whatever the mm-hmm. words are.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, it doesn't the what I write about in the book, the what's called nimawashi or, or piecemeal consensus, and I put in the book this sort of five step process you can follow to, to do piecemeal consensus. I try to make it easy, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not hard really. It's not I mean it's an art, but it's an easy art, you know. Um it's really, you don't have to be some kind of prototypical, like, jo- you know, jockey kind of, ex, you, know, ex, you yeah. know, what's it called, uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, not a, not an introvert, an extrovert. You know, you don't have to be all these sort of salesy extrovert person. To do piecemeal consensus, you can be very reserved, you can be very quiet-spoken, and you can actually have more power and kind of impact by, by being a good listener and being a quiet speaker and having these kind of small one-on-one meetings with people you don't have to like have the fancy powerpoint with the like blowout presentation in front of 200 people or something that that's the book is really about how that is not as effective Mm. as as these one-on-one uh meetings with people cool yeah yeah
0: one i think one quote that comes to mind is like never let your education get in the way of learning Right. Oh yeah. Did you, do you? Are there like any types of organizations? I'm I'm assuming. How did you write the book? Did you do it from studying mm-hmm. a lot of organizations, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. mostly, or did you listen to a lot of stories mm-hmm. from people? Mm-hmm. How did you go about? Like, did you fly to Japan? Or yeah, I
1: wish. No, I didn't go to Japan. That's a great quote. That's uh, that's that's um, Mark Twain. Yeah. And uh, I, I I love that quote. I think that's a really. I've I lived many years of my life with that quote in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably still do. But that's a good question. How do I write the book? Well, you write a book by setting up a writing routine. So you need that. That's kind of the efficient cause. But you need a kind of final cause. You need like a reason why you're doing everything. And so for me, that the final cause was really just, um, um, I mean, I guess I just, I really wanted to have written a book and I had a lot of different ideas for what books to write and I, I took this interesting workshop with this guy who who helps people write books. And he said, and I thought and I thought he's right, you know, he said, take your whole list and then ask yourself, which one can you finish the fastest? That might be a good guiding principle, actually, mm-hmm. of which book you should write first. So I have a whole plan of writing a lot of different books. But this was the book that I thought, man, I'm so clear on the idea. I see it so clearly in my mind. I could just like, if I wrote really diligently, you know, I could get this book out. So I just really, really religiously, I write every Saturday in the morning. Uh, That's my planned time that I go and write, 9 to 12 or 9 to 1 every Saturday. I go to a cafe and write. And by having that habit, um, I get things done, and I get the books out, and I get a lot of writing out. Um, Yeah. Persistent, right? Very, yes, very persistent, very consistent. I, I hardly ever miss a Saturday unless I'm like totally, you know, I don't know, out of the country or something. You know, really thrown off. And then if I miss a Saturday, I just make it up on Sunday or whatever. Yeah. But I haven't missed a weekend probably in three years of writing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, book about
0: leading change at work. Maybe I know you worked in consulting. So, like, has this been in, on your mind, like how company politics works since those days when you were at Epic. dot com? I think. Yeah, that's was, right. Yeah. What was like maybe your first experiences with like how company cultures? Like, well, tell me, maybe is there a time when you worked at a company and and you saw them making a change, but not actually change, like no actual progress on anything? Yeah.
1: Yeah. The inspiration for the book was from a project that a friend of mine and I did while at Epic. So we were at Epic and we wanted to, we had this idea to start uh, a Stack Overflow-like knowledge management platform, like website, And so we, and so we were like, oh, let's do this. And we just stumbled around trying to make this change and we kind of made every mistake in the book. And, uh, and, and then, so in retrospect though, you know, hindsight's 2020, I was able to kind of see what we did right and what we did wrong. And that actually served as the basis of the idea for the book. It was originally going to be called guerrilla innovation, meaning, uh, uh, meaning like we would kind of innovation that kind of crept up from, from, from the bottom, from, from, you know, the jungle, the jungle floor. <laughs> um, but then I decided guerrilla innovation. It had a little bit of a military feel, which I didn't really like it. And I did some user testing for the title and a bunch of people thought they didn't really want an, a book that had like a military kind of title. Mm-hmm. And then other people, I ran the title by probably over 50 different people and got their feedback and people didn't like grill. I did some people liked it, but the The other thing people had a problem with it was it, it sounded too kind of negative, like you were being nefarious, like bad, mm. like you were a bad person. And the point I want everyone to th- think of it very positively, like it's good to make good changes. It, it's really just improvements, right? Like yeah. how do you improve a process? How do you improve, you know, the company's doing? Uh, the way people do interviews is not great. Uh, maybe there's a problem with how it's done. You want to change the interview process. Well, how do you do that? Like you have to you have to convince people or you have to get people excited about that change. Or do you have to ask permission or and you know, so if you don't really know what to do, then you kind of, you don't know what to do. You think, well, we just need to change it. You might end up just complaining. You might end up just saying, going home and saying to your partner or to your friend, ah, the interviewing is so bad at my company, you know, but because you don't know what to do exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you read my book and then, you know,
0: (laughs) all about group mindset. Yeah. (laughs) I think you keep bringing up this, uh, I heard you say this term, nimawashi, right? Yeah. How did you come across this term?
1: That's interesting. Yeah, it was kind of weird because I'd been writing the book the whole time. I would already written like more than half the book and I had not yet found this word, nimawashi. And then I was reading about the Toyota production system, the TPS, which was invented in the, like, pretty much started to be invented after World War II when Toyota switched to being a car company, but then it really came to kind of fruition in the 80s, about 30 years later, and then it started to bleed over and like cross the Atlantic, uh, the Pacific to America mm-hmm. um, in in like the late 80s and the 90s, and then it's had these kind of phases of 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 of, of cross cultural adoption by the United States at mm-hmm. different levels. So it started at the man at the manufacturing level with which what was called lean manufacturing. Uh-huh. And then it kind of moved into the managerial realm with what is just called lean. And then in software, that was really kind of adapted into what's called agile. Uh-huh. So so what we thought, think of as software engineers as agile development is actually an adaptation of lean, which is an adaptation of the TPS, the Toyota production system. Uh-huh. So I like to always, maybe because of my training Going to St. John's where I studied like the great books. I always want to go back to the very beginnings of things to understand the current avatars of things. So I didn't just read whatever the most cutting edge books was. I went back to the original books, which were written by the two Japanese guys who worked at who were like the head of Toyota. Which one is guy is Taichi Ono and the other one is. uh, uh, I can't remember his name now it's like, it's like S-H-S-H like Shia, Shabuya or something like that anyways I don't know I'm trumpeting my ignorance that I forget his name but Taichi Ono was the main guy's book that I read and and he talks all about all these different parts of the TPS of the Toyota production system and one of them uh, we're familiar with a lot of them through Lean Startup and, Lean yeah. and Agile so there's pivots the idea of a pivot that comes from TPS that's called Kaizen or, sorry, Kaizen is continuous improvement. Iteration is Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Kaikaku is a pivot, a dramatic shift at one point. Yeah. Another word is Kanban, which we talk about Kanban boards like Trello. Oh, yeah. That's also part of the TPS. So there's about 14 principles of the TPS system of, man- of management of, of manufacturing. And one of them is Nimowashi. And when I read it, I was like... Oh, my God! This is girl innovation. This is it. This is the same. This is what I'm writing my book about. And so then that spurred this entire, you know, research that I you know I googled Nimawashi and I looked and read everything I could about it. And what I found which was remarkable is that there's almost nothing about it. It's a completely neglected um, you know, ignored part of the tps and, and of lean and of and of and of lean startup and of lean management and of agile of all of that name is completely ignored
0: that's crazy i
1: know it's crazy and i thought first of all i thought ding 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 you know like i've, I've hit the jackpot you know because i've found something that nobody talked about which is fun to fight if you're a researcher or you're a writer you find something nobody's talked about you're like this is great you know it's so rare because everyone's talking about everything you know mm. so I uh, so I said okay well I'm gonna learn more about this and then it fits so well with what I had already written 25,000 words about you know the book when you write a book you count off how many words 40,000 you're done you know it's about it's about 150 page book <laughs> mm. so I had already written more than half of the book and then I found this amazing thing and I thought First, I thought I should just call the book like Nimawashi, you know, and then I thought, I don't want to just seem like I'm just only one note, one, you know, one hit wonder. Like I'm just talking about Nimawashi. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about what people are really doing and talk about Nimawashi. So I just made it like a chapter in the book to try to kind of explain and contextualize what people are doing with this, uh, this Japanese concept, Nimawashi. And I translate it. I give it a new translation Mm -hmm. that I think is the best translation so far. If you read through the kind of history of Nimowashi, it started off people just thinking it meant like politeness, like like go have cup tea with people and make sure they're everyone's happy. That's kind of what it originally sounded like to the mm-hmm. original kind of Western people who were first reading the TPS or learning about the TPS. And then it became understood as consensus. So people said, "Oh, they're they're coming to consensus." Like to have part of the TPS was to come to consensus. Um, But it kind of just peters out there uh, as understood as consensus. But most people, when they think about consensus, think, oh, we'll get everybody in a room and then everybody will like fight over it until we all agree. That's like the general sense, like, oh, we have a consensus based organization. That sounds horrible to me. And it should sound horrible to you as well. It's not good to just try to cram everybody in a room and have them fight about something. You won't come to consensus. You know, you'll just run out of time. The meeting will be over and you mm-hmm. won't have come to a consensus. So I think a lot of people are rightly skeptical when they hear about consensus because it sounds like cramming everybody in a room. So when they heard Namawashi and they heard its consensus, they just thought, oh, that's just some weird thing. Like in Japanese culture, they must just be able to come to consensus. Huh? You know, as Americans, we just can't. OK, that's just some cultural difference that or something. Mm. But then when I when I when I when I saw Nimowashi, I saw it from this guerrilla innovation perspective and I saw, oh, it's not cramming everybody in a room and f- having them fight. It's one on one conversations where you're building up consensus before you maybe you have a big meeting. So then when you get to the meeting, everyone's already in agreement. and that's kind of that that's kind of what the book's about is like how do you do that effectively and it it also tries to kind of prove to people i mean people might think that's a new idea i've I've never heard of that or so a lot of people say oh we do that all the time already which is great yeah that's great Mm -hmm. but it helps to name things right when you have a name for something you can kind of start to really leverage it and really understand it you can train new people to do it you can you know, mm-hmm. you can you can improve your culture by having a kind of name for the thing you might already do, or maybe what your best people already do. Yeah. Um. Anyways, so that that's kind of Nimowashi. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like you already had like the idea for it. Like, would you say it kind of like it was a breakthrough for you, or that like you could, you already had
1: your own name for it? Yeah. And this it, it just helped you like. Totally. Kind of totally. Yes, I totally already understood the kind of that process, yeah. w- but I didn't know that. The Japanese, you know, Toyota production system had a word for it already. Mm-hmm. Um, the jet, ja- yeah, so I did. So that was just like a total win. It was just like, whoa, cool. And this happens all the time if you're seriously researching something and you're really, you know, really searching, you know, all through Google Scholar and through historical books, you know, and you're kind of going down these sort of paths of all these historical books. You'll find things that are like, whoa, what a crazy like synchronicity that that. That just fits right together like hand in glove, yeah. so you'll find that all the time. And I just really lucked out that I found such a nice yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So I what I'm hearing is like
0: Nima Washi like represents this like savvy person. Maybe not like you said, not like over the top personality, but it's someone who's like, for instance, I used to work in like sales, right? And they tell okay. you like when you're going for a deal like know all the stakeholders, like all the people influencing. Yes, that yes it. exactly. So is this book kind of like that? Like um, persuading people, learning how to like, like anything, any idea you have, like yep. maybe, maybe let's go through an example, right? Sure. Say like, sure. we'll yeah. use myself as an example. Okay, say great. if I wanted, say Zane wants make school to make like a real studio. Yes,
1: right? excellent. Maybe take, yep. let's, yep. how yep. about we
0: step yep. through like the, yep. Yep. the, the, the process. Yep.
1: Yeah, so I think there's one thing that might we have to keep in mind, which is that I think there's already been a lot of writing in business books about what's called influence, and, and so my book is, is it's sort of about influence, but there's a key difference, I think, which is with Nimawashi, you're not necessarily gunning for a certain outcome. Hmm. You're more just trying to drive a process of change and have it end up being the right change you're not necessarily so certain at the beginning that it has to be, I want it to be this way. So in your example, I want to build a studio, that that might be a little more like the kind of the influence. And you can read, there's great books about influence where you're trying to kind of convince people and sort of like angle to, to get what you want, which is fine. And we can look at that example. It'll, you can do Nemoashi for that too, because it's, it's a form of influence. But I think the purest form of Nemoashi is more like I want to change something to fix it. And actually, I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not attached to the exact way we do it. And then when you start having these one-on-one conversations, you might have a hunch about how to fix it. But, but then you share that hunch and people share their hunches or criticize what you kind of start off with in these one-on-one meetings. And you build towards like the best solution for the whole team. Yeah. And so it's a little more organic and a little more, again, it's consensus building. So it, it, no one really necessarily feels like they win, and it was their idea. It's an idea that emerges out of a group of people, but it emerges through these like one-on-one meetings. But for your example, let's look at it. So you say you want to start, you want to make a, a recording studio. Although this is already pretty nice, I think you're already doing pretty good. I like that. I um, it. Then maybe you would start. So the the, the five steps in the book for Nimawashi to do to do piecemeal consensus is first thing is you got to. Um, Uh, brainstorm is that it wait let me double check first you brainstorm yeah so first you brainstorm what you think might be kind of the solution that would be the best solution doesn't mean that that has to be it but it's good to not come empty-handed to people right Mm. then you go to your peers so you don't try to go straight up the ladder that's most people go straight up the ladder they're like i'll just ask my boss right i'll ask my manager can we change this Or I'll make a great pitch to them. We should change this because it's all these benefits and all the... I'm selling you on it, right? I'm trying to to sell you on it. But managers really don't have time for that. And you know what I mean? They don't really want to hear about changes. They're more excited to hear about you doing your job and hitting your metrics and succeeding in your stuff they don't really necessarily have time to hear about changes you want to make.
0: Yeah. I swear. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like that's, that, right. that's so relevant to us. Cause like me and Muhammad, the first thing we did when we had this idea, mm-hmm. you said, Oh, we, we we should talk to Ben, right? The yeah. content market, the first thing. And like, he liked the pitch. Yeah. But the first thing he said, okay, now go. And I'm not like blaming him, but he no, said, now go right. make like, go write up a whole proposal. Okay. Right. right. As opposed to then, like yeah. we spent one month doing this and like, like yeah. really nitpicking every word. Then I said just forget it. Like, like then, <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I started like yeah. just with one like I didn't need make school. Yeah. I actually started making yep. the episodes and now just like that. The world just comes around just back like that. to you.
1: Yep. Yeah. So he did exactly what is in the book, which the first the first chapter of the book is the limits, what's called the limits the limits of open minded management, right? We all would like and, and you know, if you pick up a traditional, you know, Harvard Business Review or
0: any business
1: book or, or talk to anyone, you know, the common notion is that managers should be able to manage change that they should be able to be the, you know, kind of umpires and coaches who help people who have good ideas or new ideas to like shepherd them in through a process of change. But in reality, managers, they ain't got no time for that. Like they don't they don't have time to do that. They're busy trying to keep the wheels on the bus. Like they're trying to keep the business like working and they're very busy just trying to keep you doing your job. They don't have time to have you, you know, spin off whole new things. Now your case to the podcast is a good example. Probably, you know, people are like zane's got homework to do like zane should be learning you know he should be learning to code but you know as as an example you know not not that i think this is great but i mean you know that's the kind of the equivalent to the manager the manager is like why the hell are you talking about that like you gotta like hit your sales goals or you gotta like finish your tickets you we don't have time to talk about you know that's what they're thinking in the back of their head Mm -hmm. so going to your manager is kind of a kind of a it seems like the right thing to do but it's actually the wrong thing to do what you want to do is first go to your peers and 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 chat with your peers one-on-one so meet with a peer and be like hey i'm thinking about this podcast like this is cool right like what do you think like what and they tell you what they think you know and then you can take what they say talk to somebody else and be like hey they said this and like i was thinking this what do you think and you start if you have you know 10 or 15 of those conversations you become the expert guess what, you're the most expert person in the whole, all of a sudden, you're the most expert person in the whole business and all you had to do is have 10, 10 minute conversations. Mm. So that puts you in this position of really a lot of knowledge. Yeah. And then you wanna write up a summary. So you wanna write up a little bit of a just, you know, summary of kind of what you've learned because you're gonna use that summary to build more of a kind of coalition around your idea. Mm. And then you might think, oh, now I've got this summary, I better go directly to my manager. No. Don't go to your manager. They even if you have a great idea and it's all bulletproof and you're the expert and you've talked to 10 people and da da da, they still don't have time for it. What you do is you go what's called over and up. That's what I say. Go over and up, which means in the hierarchical structure of the mm-hmm. business, you have your manager directly above you, but you don't want to go directly up. You go over to your one of your peers and then up to their manager. I see. Because if you go over there they are a manager. They have more power and cloud and responsibility because they probably work there longer and they know more and, you know, there are more people and stuff and they might have budgets. They might have, you know, they have more power. They're a manager, but they're not your manager. So they're not worried about you like getting your sales, you know, hitting your sales goals and finishing your tickets. They kind of are like, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> like they're kind of like wondering, but they if you say, hey, do you have 10 minutes to chat about this idea? You know i've been working on it for a few days a few you know a week or two and i've talked to these people and i have these key questions that i think someone with more experience like you might be able to answer they'll say yeah sure but if you say to your manager hey is you know can i have permission to do this they'll say get back to your sales report go get back to your coding or whatever it is so you want to go over and up and then as soon as you've gone over and up a few times and gotten that kind of managerial input because they'll have a lot to say managers are very smart They know a lot about how the organization works Mm -hmm. because they've been there longer. Um, Those people who are over and up from you, they will give you a lot of feedback and the idea will develop more. And then once you've talked to a few of those people, Mm -hmm. your idea is probably, it's either dead or it's really going to work. Like it's really a good idea and it's really going to fly inside the company. And at that point, it's going to be out of your hands. Like the idea is going to be so well-developed and you're going to have talked to so many people about it and so many people are going to be in support of it that probably one of those managers you talk to they're just going to go and start doing it you might not even get any credit that's the re- that's the real thing people have to wonder about is how much credit you're going to get because you might not get as much credit as you think i i think it's still worth doing cuz cuz i think you you do get this kind of aura around you as like a person who like things move when they get involved like things happen but it won't be like uh, you know you won't be invited on stage and like laurels will be thrown at your feet and like a thousand trumpets will be played like no 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 one's gonna like thank you maybe even directly but if you do it over time and you do multiple you know you know iterations of this process and you you help change a couple things in your organization people are going to be like this person is serious. Like this is a really good person. Like I want to work more with them. Like I yeah. want them on my team. Like this is great. Yeah. Even if they can't point a finger at exactly what you did necessarily, because mm. things kind of become like a movement around you. Um, that's actually a good thing to have. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of the five step Yeah. That process. Yeah. And just like
0: listening to that right now, I'm thinking like, I think that's actually more powerful. People don't like recognize you right away. Like, you're like the mastermind in a little bit a little bit i mean not really you're you're totally
1: up front you know you want to be totally above board you want to say hey yeah i'm working on this i'm working on this project but then you want to be really honest actually you've talked to five or ten people so it's not really just you you're like i and a bunch of other people have been working on this project right you want to be as honest as possible um and kind of keep things very above board. And you don't want to overstate things either. If you think it's like super cool, you don't want to say this is the coolest thing ever. Because if you really think objectively, it's maybe not the coolest thing ever. It's just what you're working on right now. So you think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. So when someone asks you, you say, well, it's a project. I've been working on it with these other people. And, you know, we're excited about it. But I can see that there's other things that are important too. You know, you want to keep things very honest and very above board when you're doing this kind of change. Because if you start to seem like, you know, you're holding back or you're not being honest or you're not being, you know, for- forthright with people. They don't want to necessarily give you that 10 minutes anymore. You know, they don't necessarily want to trust when you're asking questions of them because they'll think you're not asking good faith. Mm. You know, so you want to stay very, very positive, very, very above board, very open, very realistic. Yeah. And it's actually quite disarming if you're that if you're like that, because then no one can really pull anything on you or try to discredit you. You know, it's like Bernie Sanders. You know, nobody can be like, that guy's a jerk. He's trying to trick everybody because he's never, you know, he's been he's been so straightforward with people his whole career. Clean slate. Totally. Yeah. Just totally straight shooter. Right. So if you're that same way, then you have an, it's called integrity. Right. That's called integrity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people forget that because the current president, we forget that there's this thing called integrity where you say what you say and you mean it. And then you stay by your word like that. That's that's integrity. Mm. So if you have integrity and you demonstrate that that helps you dramatically in your career far bet, far more than if you try to be like the trickster who keeps all your kind of half truths clear with all the people you told them to. Mm. That's much harder. And, and then also leads to far worse outcomes, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that like one of the big mistakes people make when they're when you're trying to do something like this? Uh, maybe that's a good question. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like I've, what
1: mistakes do people make? Yeah. Hmm.
0: Or maybe if it helps, like maybe a time you tried to lead change yeah. and, and maybe made a mistake along the way. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, I've done that a million times because <laughs> we're all, you know, because we make, make mistakes. Also, tra- change is quite hard. You have to be really like, you have to be quite big. I think you have to try to be quite big hearted, you know, kind of like mm. to um to do it. Or not as really a big hearted. What is it? Like big sold. You have to be like, open to things not going your way, open to someone else getting more credit maybe, open to that because of the greater good, it's going to be better. We're going to have fixed the process. It's going to help the business. If you work at a business like Make School that actually helps the world because it provides accessible higher education to people, then it's all for the win. It's all for the good, right? Like even if you don't get credit, even if whatever, it's still for the good. And I urge people to try to work at companies like that because it's so much easier to be motivated if you're like, I don't care if I get credit. I don't care if I get a raise. I don't care if I get a promotion. The point is, I made the organization better, and the organization does good in the world. That that's a highly motivating thing. But to your question, um, what mistakes do people make? I I think in change, the biggest mistake people make is that they don't they they get they don't know. Well, the biggest mistake is to go ask your manager for permission. Don't do that. Don't yeah. don't do that. Your manager doesn't want to, doesn't even want you to ask them permission. They they want you to just do your job. <laughs> just go to your manager and give them updates on how great you're doing your job, and then leave. Like that's it. That's all they want to hear, and that's fine, and that's good. Um, that's their job. That's good, man. I'm not I'm not dissing managers. Managers are like super important. They're super great. They have a very difficult job of like r- keeping a business running. Yeah. Um, what I'm trying to say is that change happens on a different network than the hierarchy of the the, organi- the, org, the org chart. Hmm. That's, really the, that's really why Nimowashi works. And there's a whole chapter on this, on social networks at work, and, and why Nimowashi works because of the mechanics of social networks at work. We all just look at the org chart, right, the tree-shaped hierarchical org chart, and we think, oh, everything runs on that network. And it's not true. Hmm. That's the network of issues going up, orders coming down. Right. That's authority and responsibility yeah. flow on that network. But change actually doesn't flow on that network. It flows on the social networks of the organization. Cool. Yeah. So if you're friends with the VP of sales, right, or something, you're friends with them. They're not your boss. They're not right. And you should talk about ideas with them. That makes the ideas flow around the company, not through the hierarchy of the business. And that's why Nemawashi works so well is because that's actually the dynamic that you want to leverage Mm -hmm. to make change. You don't want to try to use the hierarchy to make change. You want to leverage social networks. Right. Talk to your peers. Then talk to like these managers who are happy to just chat with you because they're not your manager. Um, They're just people in the company. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we're talking about social <laughs> networks, not the Facebooks, not the no, LinkedIn. No, real social networks. I want to dig deeper into, I, I heard you say being the expert, right? I think mm-hmm. that, is that kind of like the key to this whole thing? Like you come up and it almost sounds like you're user interviewing people along the way for your idea. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. I'm, I think you're right. Yeah. I think,
0: I don't know if there's like a blind spot, but I didn't hear you say, what if there's knowledge, right, about the problem you want to solve mm-hmm. that you... Is it possible a person might have to talk to people outside their company to while they're in the process? Of?
1: Yeah, you might. You might if if a change that you're trying to do is like something that has to do with outside too. Mm-hmm. But generally, not, not not really. Generally, no. Because I'm thinking more about internal processes. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of external information. I think is more given. So, say for example, your company and you're thinking about. You know, you're like, oh man, we should start a new product. Mm -hmm. Of course, to start a new product, you got to like interview users and like do market research and you got to do all that. Um, But the Nimawashi process is more going to be about getting people even to consider to do that research and work. Do you know what I mean? So it's before that, it's before you would go and do all that research, you have to first get people even on board with the idea of like doing that, like mm-hmm. making in some kind of new product. Yeah. yeah. And then it also can be used just for like where to move the coffee machine to, right? I mean, you can use <laughs> it for small changes too. You know, if you just say, Hey manager, can we move the coffee machine? They're like, I don't have time to talk about coffee machines. Right. But if you go and say, Hey Bob, like, do you think we should have? Where's the coffee machine? You remember how it used to be over there? And Bob's like, "Oh yeah, I don't know, maybe it could be somewhere else." You know, <laughs> and you do that with three or four people. Probably you're gonna move. They're gonna move the coffee machine like the next week, right? Because you've kind of started a movement. You kind of built this little, built this little network, this little social network around a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I answered your question. No, I'm, I'm, we're I'm picking of a lot.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I'd start about like. It feels, I feel like I'm listening to Startup Club. I feel like, are there any, maybe this Uh could be something you do Uh in Startup Uh Club, Uh like companies that do Washi well.
1: Yeah, sure. That's what actually the last section of the book is. The whole third section of the book is all different companies that already are doing Washi really well. Mm -hmm. They don't call it Washi because they don't know the word uh, and they don't, you know, they'll call it piecemeal consensus either because nobody knows that word. I just made, you know, I made that (laughs) phrase up for the book, right, to translate Washi, But I talk about how Google has... Google really popularized, basically invented, but but probably popularized the idea of a free lunch, right? Like you go and have a free lunch at the cafeteria of the business. Cool. Google did that, and if you think about it, what's a free lunch? It's a place where everybody, independent of the hierarchy, sits down, can bump into each other, can see each other, can socialize, and that's a rich opportunity for now information to flow non not through the hierarchy, right? Yeah. Meta hierarchical kind of conversations can happen, mm-hmm. and nimawashi happens on those tracks. Like that's where nimawashi can really happen. It's like the lunch time. This is famous in Pixar as well. So people talk about how Pixar, Steve Jobs made it have one bathroom in the middle of a giant atrium. Okay, yeah, yeah. and that's and that the idea was, and Steve Jobs said this: people are going to literally talk to each other on the way to the bathroom, <laughs> which is the uh, you can read it in the book. I, I kind of dismantle this idea that they're talking to each other on the way of the bathroom. They're not talking to each other on the way of the bathroom. The atrium, the Pixar central atrium, was not just a bathroom in a big empty thing. It was. It had all kinds of programming going on. They had a whole team of people whose job was to set up cool events that everyone in the company could come to. And so people were having a lot of mixing and there was free food there during lunch. And so that atrium, even though, yeah, it had one bathroom, the real thing was that everyone was mixing and doing opportunities for this Nimowashi type uh, exchanges in that atrium. It wasn't just the bathroom, but it, it was the atrium as a whole. So you can't completely... You know, yeah. it's funny that people talk about the one bathroom. Now there's lots of bathrooms at Pixar because there's a big, you know, their, their offices are much bigger. But the original office, you know, that Steve Jobs helped design. Yeah. So that's great examples. Pixar is a great example where they do Nemoashi, great. They also give them private offices in Pixar. Hmm. So everyone gets a private office. Now, if you think about Nemoashi, you can't do Nemoashi unless you can have a private one-on-one conversation. And that's kind of hard to do if everyone's sitting in a bullpen, right, in an open office area. Yeah. So I I critique Facebook. Actually, Facebook has this giant open office. They have the largest open office bullpen space in the world. It's giant. It's like the size of an airplane hangar. And I criticize that and I say, you know, actually you probably shouldn't have that, right? Cuz you can't actually do Nimowashi. You're shutting down you're shutting down innovation if you have open offices. It's better to have private offices, even if they're small mm-hmm. so that people can kind of knock on the door and be like, Hey, do you have 10 minutes? Like, can we just, I just have a question. And now Nimowashi is happening kind of all around. So you have to have this kind of going into public spaces and breaking down and having like lunches and events where you're connecting with people. And then you have to like go back to your office and now in your private offices, you can have all these little conversations. Unfortunately, that's the opposite of the trend of most businesses. Most businesses have these kind of open office layouts and then there's really no, and then maybe, you know, maybe you get a free lunch. That's yeah. good. But the open offices are just nimawashi killers. Yeah. They're, they're terrible. And, and there's good evidence that I, that I cite in the book and tell the whole story actually of this research that shows that open office layouts are actually terrible for, for innovation and collaboration. They, Cause everyone's quiet. It's yeah. like a library. Like the, all the cubicles in a row. Or... No, cubicles actually would be better. Open oh. offices is the worst. Open office, so just tables oh, with okay. no walls and everyone's just sitting working. That's the absolute, it's like it's like mustard gas for a collaboration. Hmm. It just kills it. People don't talk to each other uh, because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like everyone can hear you, right? So you don't say anything. You're like, oh, stay quiet. Yeah. So you can read it in the book. It's actually probably one of the most fascinating chapters of the book. Is all about op- how open offices are terrible for collaboration and, and innovation because, because you can't do nimawashi. You can't do these one on one conversations. Mm-hmm.
0: And so far, like I've heard you mention like Pixar and Google. And yeah, is this only applied like if I'm like a say, like an entrepreneur, like a mixed student uh-huh. goes out there mm-hmm. and starts a startup, when should totally. they worry about like Nimowashi when their company is really big or? Yeah,
1: well, I think just... it should be from day one. I think Nimowashi is a great process to use for leaders, even if you are the authority of the company. I have a whole chapter on it, it's called the you know leading change from the top. And it's all about how to use these processes that the rest of the book is about kind of leading change from the bottom up. But you can actually use them and with, you can use them with great effect if you are the boss. Because, uh, because if you make a decision, this is the thing, okay. How is change made today from the top down? Okay, people go, you know, People go off the, the, the vice presidents all go off to like a offsite, right and they like drink beer and they <laughs> drink whiskey and they talk about and they have presentations and they have meetings and they decide on a bunch of stuff. And then they come back and they just tell everyone, this is what we're doing. Yeah. How well does that work? You know mm-hmm. The answer is not very well. Like, because when you do things by fiat, when you do things by command, You generally get a few people are like, oh, I can kind of see how that works. Yeah, and and I just, I do what I'm told, so great. You know, I'm obedient to the leadership, so I'll just do it. But then you get a bunch of other people who are like, really, is that what we should do? And there's really no chance for them to like air that, that, because that's already been decided, you know. And so they don't really get a chance to air that out. And so the only thing they can really do is just drag their feet. That's all they can do is just be less productive. And so you get a lot of lower productivity because people are just doing what they're told Mm -hmm. instead of being kind of like involved in the development and then the the movement and then the pitching of a new idea or a change. So if someone from the top wants to use nimawashi, they'll get far more productive teams because they'll go down to people and say, hey, I have a question, like, you're a sales associate. What do you think about like this? And the sales associate will be like, oh my god, the vice president is here in my office, you know, and say, um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I don't know, but you know, and then, you know, like there'll be a conversation, you know, and and they, they'll get more information than if they just go off to an offsite and like decide because they looked at their spreadsheets, you know? Um, and then, yeah. So you build up from the bottom. If you build up change from the bottom, even if you are at the top, you will, you will get far more productive workers and, you'll you'll set be setting an example of for people for how to lead change so they'll say oh how do i make a change well i'll do the same thing that the boss does i'll go have conversations with people and then i'll i'll build this kind of little movement around the idea so so in a lot of ways you everyone i think it's really valuable for everyone um there's some idea people said oh this doesn't work this doesn't matter at small companies some people said i don't actually think that's true i think when you're at small companies it's even more the case that you wanna keep people on the same page and you wanna have you wanna have consensus and you wanna have people exploring all the different options. And if you mm-hmm. just put if say your company's small, say it's seven people, if you have a room full of seven people, it's still gonna be a long meeting. Yeah. But if you go and meet if if you go and meet with three or five of those seven people for ten minutes each, you can very rapidly get to a consensus. And that consensus can very quickly sweep across the seven people and become, like, the consensus that everyone believes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at every level, you're going to want to be k- fluent in this idea of piecemeal consensus. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And in those conversations, right, when SP, we talk about, like, the Laura framework. Uh-huh. How, how should, like, a person model, like, that exchange? Is it with, like, like yeah. say you want to... So many times, maybe you're coming with i'm a, I'm like i'm thinking if i have this idea i want to bring mm. up with them but i'm also trying to seem like like, like you said like too not necessarily yeah really invested yeah. in it yes I, this I mean, is
1: where it, it comes back to what you said which was very smart which was uh it's like your user interviewing them um, and that's really what it is like so you have to bring that same kind of like um Bias removal that you bring when you do user interviewing, mm-hmm. you have to bring that to these Nemawashi conversations as well. Yeah. You have to say, you know, I have a hunch, but I'm not going to lead with that. I'm going to lead with the challenge that everyone recognizes, right? So you go in and you say, hey, you know, this isn't really working, is it? You know, and they're going to be like, yeah, it's not working at all. You know, or they're going to be like, yeah, I know. It's like, this is a challenge. This is a really a problem. And then you pick their brains. What do you think is you know going on? What do, you, what do you think the solution would be? And let them tell you. And, you know, it's natural in social conversation that if you ask their opinion, they'll ask your opinion. And so that gives you a chance. That gives you a, a gentle kind of opening, if you know, to say your, your hunch. Now, you might in the moment as they explain their hunch, their idea of a solution, you're going to be like, Oh, well, theirs is way better than mine, right? I mean, you know, you're in you're in flux. You're you're not certain. You don't want to go in dead certain. Just like a product developer doesn't go in dead certain. Oh, my product's going to be a success. You go into a user interview with open mind. Maybe I'm wrong, you know. And I want to hear. I honestly want to hear their opinion. Yeah. And if you bring that kind of attitude, then you'll uh, then you'll you'll succeed way better than if you come in guns blazing. Hey, I've got a solution to the problem. Everybody listen to me. You know that that doesn't work nearly as well. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Listen, guys. This is one of the things I've heard over and over again since coming to Make School. Turn one, we go over user interviews. At orientation, Jeremy talked a lot about like switching from like I have the solution to when you're with your peers, like let me, let's try and find the solution mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can I ask you? Maybe get a little more specific to the Make School experience. Yeah, I know. I know. I have my war room for sp three one point three happening tomorrow. Okay. And and I'm the PM for that team. Great. And and so I'll give you like a really like a scenario that we're going through right now, and we're we're trying to find. I've been trying to find user, people people use your interview, and mm-hmm. not a lot of people. It's about architecture, so. Okay. Kind of, I guess, it's more more niche type of thing. Mm-hmm. So it has mm-hmm. been harder to find people to use mm-hmm. We've sure. been going over like just our own market research. Yeah. Right. Cool. And but we're not really sure. Like we started one version of the product. We don't know if we will have to pivot or not. Mm-hmm. What would be like your advice for like a maybe a PM who goes into a meeting not really sure like how to move the the
1: the product forward? Yeah. So you're kind of like you lack it lacks validation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, even if it's a niche, you know, sometimes a niche is really good because then there's really only a few people you can talk to. Right. And they have very specific job titles. So if it's about architecture, like contact an architect, like go on LinkedIn and just search architect and then like see if anyone's connected to you and like message them, you know, and say, Hey, can I talk to you for 10 minutes or whatever? Um, you know, so there's very specific job titles and you just go for those job titles. Um, so it can be a benefit for it to be very niche as well, but um, yeah, I mean you want to you want to consider what your what 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 the biggest risks are, and those are the things you want to test for. You know, you don't need to test for whether you know it's going to make a lot of money. You just need to test if it's going to even survive and be able to even fund itself. Right. So you don't need to check that it's going to be the best thing ever, but you do need to check that it's like not going to instantly die. Like Mm -hmm. it's not illegal to do the business or it's not, you know what I mean? So I would say, yeah, you want to rank your validations based on the likelihood that it kills the business or the product as a whole. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I I actually, I
0: can think like that actually points right to a memory in that just this week. We found a court case where someone trying to do the thing we did, they got sued by like a regulator or Oh great! So at <laughs> least we have something to go off. Yeah, so
1: you might need to kind of. Um, that's a good. That's a good point of information because then now you can. Now you can like not do exactly what they did because they obviously got in trouble, but maybe you can do what they did but dodge. You know doing you know running afoul of the law because mm-hmm. you don't really want to do that yeah yeah
0: and we're just not we're not doing like the weed business we're not it's, yeah. it, it's architecture just so people understand sure sure uh we talked about examples i know you mentioned pixar i i think pixar is a really interesting uh company too i, I read uh, creativity
1: inc this yeah. past summer have you yeah. ever i've looked at it yeah i haven't read it fully through but yeah
0: yeah. and and would you say uh, the other example I thought of is like Apple would you say yep. now like Apple with the one loop is that mm-hmm. also like mm-hmm. trying to make Nimawashi
1: mm-hmm. like trying to Apple actually the book starts with Apple so the the introduction talks about Apple okay and because because yeah so well if you, if you read the introductions you know that's a free sample on Amazon so anyone can read the introduction um, but it Apple uh And is critical to Apple, and Apple knows that, and they tell their rising executives that it's critical that they know how to solve what are called type 2 problems. So Apple breaks down all problems into three types, type 1, type 2, type 3. Type 1 problems are things that you have control over. So your job purview to, like, decide things. That's type 1 problems. Pretty simple, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. usually if you can't do type 1 problems, you can't really keep working any, right? You have to leave because you can't even do your job. Type three problems are problems that you're never going to be able to solve, things you're never going to be able to change. For example, a type three problem would be like, I want to stop Apple from selling iPhones. It's never going to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're just not going to do it. It's not going to work. So that's type three problems, right? So type two problems are in between that. Type two problems are things that you might want to do or change or improve, but that you can't do on your own. And you have to kind of get other people on board. And they say in their... Uh, they have the, uh, they have this thing called Apple U, internal training to Apple, and there's a class that only rising executives can take, which is called What Makes Apple Apple? And in that class, they say it's critical that you can solve type 2 problems. That's the thing that will make or break your career at Apple. And then the class is over. They don't tell you how to actually do it. So they don't know Nimowashi. They're not aware that there's this pretty simple step-by-step process that you can use to t- to solve type 2 problems. But that's what my book is about. So if anyone's listening works at Apple and they want me to come teach them <laughs> how to solve type two problems, it, it's pretty straightforward, actually. Yeah. Go. Once once you know, you know once you once you see it, then then it's like oh this is actually pretty easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like I always like doing case studies of companies and studying examples. How about mm-hmm. like maybe other specific leaders you've thought of? Yeah. Who do Nimiwashi like? Sure. Well, and they maybe no yeah, one yeah. called him Nimawashi. Yeah,
1: sure. Well, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, I think are good examples of this. So when they started Google, they were just whatever, they were just guys in a garage, right? But when Google started to really take off, like a few people tried to buy them and like it didn't work out and but then they started to like really sell ads and really start to make money and started to really be this kind of darling of this sort of new Silicon Valley, like you know, tech, tech bubble, tech stuff going on. Mm-hmm. They really carefully created processes in Google to make Google have a specific type of culture. And a lot of people, journalists, critic, you know, people who are on, on the outside looking at it would try to report on it. And the way they reported on it was they were like, oh, it's kind of like a college campus, right? Oh, okay. And they'd say things like they get free lunch that's cool. And they would do things like, oh, and managers can't tell engineers what project to work on. That's another thing at Google, or it used to be. I don't know now, but it used to be. Sergey Brin and Larry Page made a, a thing where it, they made a policy that said that if you wanted to start a product, you had to recruit engineers, and engineers could just be like, no, I don't want to work on that. Hmm. They could work on whatever they wanted. And another thing they did was the 20% time rule, which people... Are somewhat aware of, right, that you could use 20% of your time every week on whatever you wanted, all these different sort of policies, if you see them stacked up, they're kind of just weird, and that's what a lot of commentators really said about them, is just kind of weird, and they didn't really have a language to talk about it, mm-hmm. but through the lens of piecemeal consensus, they make perfect sense. They're absolutely supportive of piecemeal consensus. Right, Because if you have 20% of your time that you can just be like butzing around with cool ideas and chatting with people about them at your free lunches, right? that's like a perfect nimawashi, like rich, that's like a rich fertile ground for there to be a lot of piecemeal consensus going on. Um, same thing with uh, not forcing them to work on things, right? So no manager can just tell you to do stuff if you're an engineer, you get to decide what you work on. Well, that is—that's exactly piecemeal consensus. If someone comes to your office and says, "Hey, I got this amazing idea for a problem. Like, we should solve this problem," you—you can, you can just go and do it. That's—that's that's exactly piecemeal consensus. So, so I think Larry Page and and Sergey Brin, if I could read their mind, what I think they were trying to do was balance the power of management with the power of engineers. Because in traditional, you know, if you were at HP in 1985 or something, Mm -hmm. managers were just in charge and engineers were just chattel. Like they were just, they just did whatever the manager said. It was like very autocratic. And I think Sergey Brin and Larry Page were like, hey, we don't want to just start the HP of internet search. We want to make a kind of like, you know, Willy Wonka factory where there's constantly new products and new things coming out of this, out of us. And in order to do that, what we need to do is we need to take the managers and we need to kind of pr- pr- structurally push down their power and structurally build up the power of engineers so that there's more of an, an equal balance of power between those two roles. And and they did that. 20% time is a perfect example. If you have 20% time, then when your manager is like, hey, do this, 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 and this, and this, you can be like, no, I'm not doing the last two of those things because I get 20% time. Larry said, you know? <laughs> or whatever you know you yeah. can cite the founders saying everyone gets 20 percent time to your manager and your manager will just kind of grumble and be like i need more i need more engineers you know <laughs> um, so yeah i think that's an example of leaders using piecemeal consensus but not realizing that and again it gets back to language if you have a word for it i think you can you can do it much more deliberately but if you don't have a word for it you have to kind of like grope in the dark with like analogies and metaphors but if you have a word for it then you can you can just go for it you can just do it yeah yeah. I'd love to work with a company who wants to like fully nimawashiify their business I would like die and go to heaven to like help them do that I think that'd be super cool yeah I swear
0: this, this book sounds like you know just God's gift to all leaders <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm,
0: I'm serious but I
1: mean it's just a, it's just one thing but yeah, yeah thank you thank you Yeah, I wanna cause you know
0: I you know I'm starting to see like the vision of it, yeah. And mm-hmm. maybe talk about like other areas that like maybe leaders. I'm I'm keep bringing back to leaders, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would like maybe a family like mm-hmm. implement Washi? Oh, interesting. How would like the president implement Oh yeah. Nimawashi?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, actually, talking about politics is kind of interesting because actually, piecemeal consensus is how legislation happens. So if you go and look at congress or whatever any any level of politics congress or state congresses whatever you know they they cast votes right and they have open sessions where they discuss uh, formally on the floor of the congress or the senate people will get up and give speeches and stuff but behind closed doors they're talking they're saying, hey, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And they, they're having these tiny private meetings one-on-one. Hey, what do we do about that? What do we do? Yeah, and they have these tiny caucuses of like seven senators get together and say, well, we're we going to solve this problem. All, that's exactly piecemeal consensus. That's exactly uh, nimawashi. And actually an interesting thing that I didn't put in the book is there's actually, did you know that Congress people used to be housed together? because they all lived in their state, respective states yeah. right like you're a senator from Ohio or a congressperson from Ohio you have to be in DC for the sessions of congress but you don't back in the day you wouldn't like have a separate apartment there you would live in the congressional housing and it was a dormitory oh. we put congress people <laughs> in a dormitory right the A51
0: of it's course. the A51
1: of the, the DC right and what what turns out to be this has been studied now is that if you if the, when the Congress was in the dormitories there was far more progress in legislation because they were literally living together Republicans Democrats mm-hmm. everybody was living in the same building so there's a lot more mixing and talking whereas now you can you know have an apartment in DC and have your house in wherever you're from. And then when you go there, you just stay at the apartment and you and you go to the con- you know, you go to the Congress building, you work, and then you leave, and then you're just on social media all the time. You're not connecting with the other Congress people. And so actually part this this paper that I was reading, which was really interesting, said that maybe part of our partisan politics is because they don't live together anymore and we should go back to that we should make a new dormitory and write into the laws that the congress has to live together in the same, <laughs> in yeah. the same building because then maybe republicans would talk to each other democrats even you know progressive and institutional democrats would talk to each other and we would see more consensus again consensus where the whole point is to build up piecemeal consensus it's so crazy how
0: long ago was that like
1: i don't know it was like it was pretty up until pretty recently it was like up until the 90s that there was this congressional housing wow. that you could get yeah
0: yeah you know. Yeah. on, on uh, that literally wow. brought my mind back to like you know what if you have like a republican Democrat and like maybe a socialist all live in the same suite. Yeah, yeah. Like this happens in the eight five one. Toilet breaks. Yeah, yeah. Republican yeah. says, "What, w- 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 you guys yeah. did this?" Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like like pix like Pixar. Yeah, People yeah. are
1: arguing at the bathroom. Yeah, right. On the way to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's the way to fix the democracy. Is we need more Nimowashi in government. Absolutely. Um, mm.
0: Yeah, this is the education like how to be a leader, right? Um, I, I know you, you've worked in startups and you probably maybe you can you can compare like a business executive software engineer people who are in different parts maybe an accountant who who like normally I, I uh, emerges as the leader right the person with the biggest MBA or is it like
1: mm-hmm.
0: what after seeing so many of these companies right yeah is it the person that's reading the most books is it the person where the
1: yeah I mean I, I mean I can say from my own opinion but it actually aligns with what there's a lot of good recent research about this uh, uh, I agree with this research that says the most the people who end up the best, and the highest leadership generally I mean most of it's privilege I mean most of it comes from your economic privilege if you have a lot of privilege growing up from your parents and your, you know, and that leads to all these cascading benefits. And then those people end up at the upper crust of society. There's almost no social mobility really in America anymore. So don't think it's like social mobility. It's not. It's it's mostly privilege. But inside of a realm where, you know, people are all of the already pretty much of the same level of privilege because they're in that room. Like they're all McKinsey consultants or something, you know, um, then I think inside that room, who rises to the top, I think is generally people who are extremely smart, in the sense that they read a lot, they listen, you know, to great podcasts. They, you know, they 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 research broadly across things, not just narrowly, but they learn about chemistry and economics and business if that's their specialty, and they really know everything about business too. So they're very intelligent, but. Being intelligent is not the thing people will compliment them on first. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. The, they won't say, oh, they're really smart or they're really intelligent or, well, they really know their stuff. Yeah. They, that's not the thing people will say. People will say, wow, they're really personable. They're really friendly. They're mm-hmm. really warm. So what you want is to be really, really, really smart but actually be even more warm, good listening, personable, Um, and then have people identify you as that, but then right underneath that as a close second is that you're just like wicked smart and like you really know things and like Mm -hmm. you've read a lot broadly and deeply. Yeah. That's what I think. Those people become the most successful. If it's the other way around, if you're the most, if you're really intelligent and you really know a lot of things, but people think, oh, he's cold or he's a jerk or he's not friendly, or Mm -hmm. I have a hard time connecting with him. That's kind of a nicer way to say it. Yeah, I can't really connect with him. You'll end up as the number two. You'll end up as, you know, you'll be important. You you know, you'll do fine. But you won't really reach Mm -hmm. those highest levels, I think. Those highest levels are reserved with people who have incredibly high EQs. And their IQs are high too, but they're secondary to their EQ. Their EQ has to be higher than their IQ. I got gotcha. you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I There's read, research around this too. You can you can look it up. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, now, and I mean, over over the winter break, I'll tell you the last two books I read before I got interested in this book was my mom uh, recommended me the psychiatrist. Re, yeah. Go read Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence. Yeah. Sure. And then totally. also Adam Grant's uh, Give and Take. Okay. Like the best leaders are people that like they're thinking about the people at the end of the day.
1: Okay. Yeah. Sure yeah totally yeah i think that's right yeah eq being personable being friendly being someone who's perceived as someone who can listen who can make people feel valuable you know those people are at the absolute top
0: yeah yeah and i've heard make school like and myself included and other make school students like worry like like what if there's a make school student that also would like to be an engineer but maybe I don't know, would you say, like, the engineer, that line kind of stops, like, as you're growing, you stop at the CTO, and maybe, like, it makes those students worried about, what if I want to one day be the CEO, right? Yeah,
1: well, here's here's what I would say to that is, you know, if you're somebody who, like, really likes to build things, you don't want to be the CEO. (laughs) (laughs) CEOs are basically doing two things. They're basically doing sales, and they're doing raising money which is sales. They're basically CEOs just do sales mm. all the time. You know, they do some like leadership visionary blah 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 stuff, but but really they're just doing sales. You know, they got to go to investors and what are they doing? They're selling the stock of the company to the investors. They're convincing the investors that they should buy the oh. stock of the company. That's sales. And then what are they doing with leadership and vision and stuff like that? They're selling the vision of the company to the employees right they're convincing nice. the employees that this is really something worth working on that it's great and you know it's a good place for them to be for their career and you know so they're selling to them and then what are they doing to the customers right they're making sure the business can sell to the customers right yeah. so CEOs are all about sales that's like their job i learned this because i've been ceo of lots of different things and i was always very product focused or i was very you know and i kept on having struggles because i wasn't selling it to everybody i wasn't constantly selling and when i finally realized that the ceo is just selling all the time i said i don't want to be the ceo i'd rather be creating things i'd rather be making products which means i'm always going to be working with some ceo that's fine that's that's okay yeah you know so i wouldn't i wouldn't take a real status a real status mindset of like oh CEO is higher status than CTO. So I want CEO, you know, that's not a very, that's not a very um, productive way to think about it. That won't make you happy for sure. Mm-hmm. Because unless you want to focus more on fit, yeah. like where what kind of work do you want to be doing? And then go for that type of work. Don't, don't worry about the status of like where you are in the hierarchy or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry about that too much. Yeah. I hear you. It's like, yeah.
0: that's, that's kind of like, I'm glad you brought that kind of demarcation. Yeah. Between the two roles. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're saying, like this is the kind of like reading books, like the I think you said at the beginning, like this is I don't know, something about MBAs, right? This is kind of education. Anyone who wanted to make that kind of change, I'm always focused on growth mindset. They could yeah. make that shift, like one day if they get tired of building things and
1: yes, you can do that work if you want to do that work, you can do it. There's ways to transform yourself. Working with a coach, working with a therapist you know, working with uh, or a counselor, whatever you want to talk, call it. But, you know, therapists help you process, you know, things in your life, develop your personality more, develop yourself in whatever way. They have all sorts of amazing tools you can use. Coaches similarly have a separate sort of set of tools, similar but maybe separate set of tools. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can develop that kind of warmer side of yourself to be able to connect with people, make people feel good. Make people feel like they connect with you, like that, you know, kind of charisma to put a sort of banal word on it. Um, but that I think that I think is what really leads to being like, yeah, the most. And, and, and Google has this, you know, they, they had this project called Project Aristotle, where they found out, or Project Oxygen, it was either Aristotle or Oxygen, but they found out that they were they were promoting the wrong people to management, right? They were promoting people who were the best engineers to become managers and it turns out that's the wrong thing to do because the best engineers, guess what, should keep engineering. They should keep building things. They should, you know, you give them a pay raise, you know, you give them a title raise and a pay raise and maybe more equity, but you don't put them in charge of other people because actually managers should have more of this EQ ability of listening to people, making them feel good, making them feel encouraged, you know, which is a hard thing to do. And guess what? The best engineers, they don't always know how to do that. So you might want to take people who are maybe not your worst engineers, but yeah, maybe take your worst engineers. If they have this skill set of, of connecting with people and making them feel encouraged and good and growing people, make them into your managers. And that's what Google found. It's really fascinating yeah. research. But you can make, just like you said, with growth mindset, though, you can make yourself into anything. Yeah.
0: yeah. This is this is probably the most uplifting episode I've done so far, especially coming off the social media one, which is... Like, but Browse, we, we are almost at the end of the show. We've talked <laughs> everything from politics, uh, companies, yeah. different things, different strategies, Japanese culture. <laughs> yeah. We're almost at the end. But I okay. want to bring this to the very last question. And I call this the qu- Browse's question. Okay. So, Let's hear it. So this is actually where you get to pose a question. I, I want, Browse, what is one question you like to pose the audience? Right, this, is, this could be an opportunity to get feedback. How's SPD 1.3 <sighs> happening? Oh, gosh, no, no, no. It could be no, like no, a no. random thing, like what's your favorite culture, Japanese food? <laughs> <laughs> How are
1: they going to answer? Uh, are they going to like. So, make school students, you can comments answer. Comments or something. Yeah.
0: So, make school students, obviously, you have the Slack. Uh, and again, yeah. it's at AJ Browse on Twitter,
1: or I'll mm. also link your LinkedIn yeah. profile. I guess I would like help. Uh, coming up with the ice cream names for all the staff. Ice cream names? So yeah, so ice cream names are names that it, it has to, it has to be some mix of their name with an ice cream flavor and you can be kind of as punny as you like. So one of so the, the so Trisha has an ice cream name called which is Matcha Mama. And now that her name isn't Mama, but she's kind of the mama bear helps us around the office and so she's called Matcha Mama. Because matcha would be like an ice cream, like a matcha flavored ice cream. Cool. So we've been throwing around, you know, what would be Browse's, what would be Allens, you know. So if the, so if you guys, and then you can do it for each other too. So if, so if if you wanna, if students wanna throw out, uh, ice cream names for each other and for the staff and for the for the instructors, I think that'd be that's that's what I that's what I ask. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Because I do this to myself sometimes, like
0: but with, like, donut flavors.
1: Okay, okay. That could be another. We could have that, too. You could say donut or ice cream flavor. Yeah. yeah. It's ironic. I, I call myself the plain donut. There you go. Plain donut. Okay, pretty basic. No, we got to get Zane in there somehow. Maybe um, Zana Oreos in Spanish means carrot. Carrot-flavored? I don't know. Carrot-flavored ice cream? That's probably a thing in San Francisco. They have They have avocado-flavored ice cream, so yeah. might as well have... Zana
0: <laughs> We'll have to leave it off there, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And by the way, five free copies going out, leading change at work for the people that listen to this episode that have a commitment to being a leader, right? And not necessarily you don't care about uh, the biggest school, going, going to the biggest school. It's about learning how to work with people, learning how to have uh, learning how to make consensus, learning how to make make change and see the problems for what they really are uh browse any final words
1: no i i i'll i'll just uh i'll just say marx's Karl marx's final words which are which is final words are for idiots (laughs) that's Marx's final words do they get the free copy how do they get the free copies? oh yeah
0: so uh, listen to this episode share it on twitter share it on uh, some people said I don't have a Twitter, that's okay. You can share it on any of your favorite social media platforms. And yeah, if it's not Twitter, you can email me or me and or browse uh, with a screenshot and we'll just we'll we'll tie them up. Whoever shares the most will get a free copy of the book.
1: And if you want to use the short link bitly slash so bit slash leading change at work, all just hyphenated, mm-hmm. that works. that goes straight to the book the page on amazon yep yeah
0: will you be si- signed the free copy sure
1: <laughs> yeah awesome. why not with that thanks yes. everybody
0: mm-hmm. thank you for listening rouse thank you for making the time this has been in the making